This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Four students just started at the University of Northern Colorado who aren't your typical students. They all have intellectual disabilities. Until now, kids in Colorado with Down syndrome or other intellectual disabilities didn't have access to college. But this year, lawmakers approved funding to start programs at three state colleges. Robin Brewer is running the program at UNC, where she's an associate professor of special education. Robin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. UNC, along with Arapahoe Community College and the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, are all starting programs. What are the profiles of some of these students? Well, the students range from, in in our program, from 18 to 28 years old. These are students who have been uh, attending public schools in the past and have graduated and completed their programs, and they are looking for a way to further their education. It's it's um, not been possible in the past because of their um, their ability to learn is slower than a typical student. They couldn't pass the SAT ACT test, and so that pretty much shut them off from um, being able to attend college. And we mentioned Down syndrome, uh, but does it include children with learning disabilities or kids with learning uh, disabilities, like say Aspergers or ADD or things like that? It would include students who have more of an intellectual or developmental disability where they're not able to learn at the same rate as typical students, that they need their curriculum modified. And that's the big change with our program is that we are working with the professors to modify the curriculum so that they can learn in these classes. The the students are taking classes with other students then in the general population. Yes. In fact, I just got back from um, making sure one got to his class safely. Um, it's the first week of classes, and so we're still all learning the buildings, and we want to make sure our students are safe. So we've been accompanying them, or their or, um, volunteers have been accompanying them too. And we're sitting in classes where we need to uh, learn more about the curriculum that's being taught so that we can uh, modify it to their need and make, meet their needs the best way possible. So you have people helping uh, modify the classes, and then you're helping the, the, the kids out as they go through their day. Yes, and we're, we're supervising them where they need, need supervision and trying to back off that supervision already on some students. They're, they're very capable of being able to learn where the buildings are, where their classes are, what their um, curriculum is going to be in their, in their class, and we'll be working with them outside their class to make sure that they're able to complete the work, and if they need help, if they need tutoring, then we're going to be able to provide that for them, too. Is the goal for them eventually to go to get a college diploma? No. So the outcome of this program is that our, our students will, when they're taking classes, they're they're typical classes that they're included in are modified for them. So they're actually auditing the classes, Mm -hmm. but because we're going to be applying for a a certificate calling this a comprehensive transition program, we have to show that we're we're measuring progress for these students. So even though they're auditing, they're going to be actively participating in class. They'll have papers to write, they'll have tests to take, but they will be modified. It looks like we've lost her there. We're going to try to reach her on the telephone. We also have an app that she's using, uh, so we may have to actually have her pick up. There she is. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Sorry, I 
Oh, no worries. No worries. So you were mentioning that the fact that these these kids are taking these classes, but eventually they will have less supervision. They will have less interaction with these these helpers and essentially uh, go through the classes themselves. Uh, but the, the idea is not to have them have a diploma at this time, but essentially some sort of certificate. Is that correct? Yeah, so by the time they get done, we'll give them a credential of completion. Mm. And what we'd like to do, before we actually start the program, we have a person-centered planning session with them where we sit down with them and we plan with the family to see what is it the student wants to be doing in five years, what's their dream job, Mm. and how can going to college help them to reach that job. So then we determine the classes they're going to be taking based on their outcomes. So we have one student who was interested in poetry. She's in poetry class right now. And uh, we have a student who's very interested in geography and, and furthering his knowledge about geography. And so he's in a geography class. And we'll be working with him over the next four years on how we're going to match those skills to a job. So for everyone, we don't have an outcome exactly yet, but we're working toward that. Just like any freshman who comes into college, they're still searching a little bit. But when they do get done, we're going to have a credential of completion that will have uh, skills on there that show that they've been able to master those skills. Now, besides the classes and the classwork, are are there extracurricular activities? Are Are the kids living in dorms? Is this a full college experience for them? This is a full college experience, and that's the difference of our program with UCCS and and Arapahoe Community College. Arapahoe Community College doesn't have residential facilities, so students uh, go there during the day. Um, And uh, our students are living in the residence hall. So we have um, two students in one residence hall and two in another, and they have typical roommates. And we do have a, we refer to them as residence life mentors um, in the in the residence hall. We have uh, one in each hall so that they can help to provide supervision when it's needed. And we didn't want the roommates to be a boss. We didn't want it to be the boss of them. Mm. We wanted them to have a typical roommates so that they could have that typical college experience and they can... Uh, interact with friends. And so as they begin to have those natural supports, friendships that they develop throughout their classrooms and on campus and clubs and organizations, then we will not be needed to provide supervision. And so that's our goal, that they become independent adults and they're able to make decisions that are safe decisions on their own. The legislature gave $75,000 to each of the schools that are offering programs. What does that exactly pay for? For me, it pays for the extra staff. So when a student is attending, like the the poetry class, uh, the the curriculum is going to be too difficult for her to complete everything that a typical college student is going to complete. And so she's going to need some modifications. It might be that an assignment might be shorter. It might be that um, she um, writes fewer poems than other students or that the structure is um, not as strict as for typical students. And so um, we need the staff to be able to do that. And then also in the residence hall, we need the staff to be able to um, plan for those uh, um, activities, those organizations and clubs that they want to attend. One of our students has, uh, we've found, uh, really likes to climb. He loves the climbing wall, and there's a climbing club. So we're going to get him connected with the climbing club. There's already a couple people he's connected with, so we're hoping that uh, just a, a natural friendship develops from that and that he, he begins to um, hang out with his friends from the climbing club. 
And so what has the reaction been from the rest of the campus and, and even the roommates that are living with these students? Roommates so far are um, fine with the students. They know that, that there is a residence life mentor, so if they have questions, they can, they can go and they can ask questions, and the, the mentor is around so that, that uh, they can provide the support if needed. So far, our, our students, their independent living skills are pretty independent, and um, they haven't needed to uh, provide a lot of support. But they're they're there to, like I said, to answer the questions and to give guidance when that's needed too. So we're working with our residence life mentors to provide them some training so that they can um, do the best that they can. One of our mentors is a special education major, so she's had some background. But one of our mentors is an acting major, so he's he's on a steep learning curve right now. But he is doing great, and it's been. Um, really nice to have them and know that they're close by and if the students have a question um, that, that they can answer it. And then if the students want to go out at a certain time, then they can uh, supervise if needed. Do other states have these kinds of programs? There are actually 200 programs around the United States. Colorado was one of the last three to develop programs in our state. But the difference in that is that many of the programs are parallel programs where they're on a college campus, but they are not, the students aren't included with the typical students. They live in very separate residential housing situations, and many of them are two-year programs instead of four-year programs. So we developed ours with the help of in Colorado. It was a group that a group of parents who got together and um, formed the initiative for higher education, inclusive higher education in Colorado. And they are the ones that really helped us get started, and they've been fundraising, and they've been also providing some funding along with the state legislature. So um, we're hoping within four years that we increase our student count, too. We have four this year. We're going to take at least six next year, and then we're hoping 10 every year after that so that we will become a self-sustaining program within five years. Robin, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much, and um, I wish you a a happy school year if you are connected (laughs) to school at all. (laughs) Robin Brewer is an associate professor of special education at UNC. This year she's running a program for students with intellectual disabilities who want to attend college. Up next, a major film production is rolling into Colorado, and it includes Jane Fonda and Robert Redford. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Hollywood icons Robert Redford and Jane Fonda will be in Colorado next month. The actor will star in a Netflix movie called Our Souls at Night. It's based on the final novel by late Colorado author Kent Hariff. The book opens with an unexpected proposition. An older woman asks her neighbor if he'll spend the nights with her, not for sex, for companionship. Later, we revisit a conversation with the writer's wife and his editor. But first, the state has agreed to pay to bring the film shoot to Colorado. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones has been following this. Corey, welcome. Good to be here. What's the latest with the project? Well, we know that the production company has set up shop in Colorado Springs, and they'll shoot the movie in Florence. This is a small town about 40 miles southwest of the Springs. Filming starts in mid-September, and uh, we've seen reports of filmmakers scouting out specific locations. The general reception seems positive, uh, but one interesting note, the Daily Record newspaper in Canyon City reports that some community members do have a bone to pick. Why is that? Well, like you said, Nathan, 
Nathan, the movie stars Jane Fonda, and the newspaper says that some people are upset by this, uh, specifically Vietnam War veterans in Florence. Uh, You see, back in 1972, Fonda visited North Vietnam, and a couple controversies have followed her ever since. Uh, One of them involves photos taken of her on an anti-aircraft gun. This is the kind of artillery that was used to shoot at U.S. planes. In the photo, she's laughing, she's clapping beside uh, Vietnamese soldiers. Fonda has apologized and says she was just caught up in a moment of song and didn't realize where exactly she was sitting. But some veterans are still angry over this. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, Let's talk about the money. How much will this movie get from Colorado? Well, Our Souls at Night can get up to $1.5 million. And there are two things that help put this into perspective. Uh, First, this is the biggest production shot in Colorado since Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. And Colorado gave that flick $5 million to shoot in Telluride last year. The incentives for Arsels at Night will be less than a third of that. But still, this is quite a bit of money when you compare it to the other films shot in Colorado recently. I've been following this as part of our reporting project that looks at public funding for the arts across the state. And we'll talk more about some of the other films uh, you're going to mention a bit. But what's the second thing to keep in mind? Oh, yeah. So the other bit of context here is that Colorado's Office of Film, Television and Media has an annual budget for incentives. And this gets approved by state lawmakers. Lately, that budget is $3 million. So if you do the math, half of that amount will go to this one film. And this is public money. So where does it come from? Uh, The state's film division is part of the Office of Economic Development and International Trade. And most of the film incentive money comes from the state's general fund, which means tax dollars. Uh, This program stems from a 2012 bill. And a specific state commission has to actually sign off on any incentive package offered to projects, and that includes TV shows and commercials, so not just movies. I see. So how does this incentive program work? It's essentially like a rebate. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are a couple key mandates. To get incentives, a shoot must hire at least half its crew from the state. So with Arsels at Night, the production company plans to hire more than 110 Coloradans. Most of those are crew jobs, but there are some cast peppered in there as well. Uh, Out-of-state companies also have to spend at least $1 million here to qualify for incentives. And the team behind Arsels at Night expects to spend more than $17 million Mm -hmm. in Colorado. And then when it's all said and done, the I's are dotted, T's are crossed, and the budgets are audited. These approved shoots can get back up to 20% of what they spent in the state. Now, I'll point out that Our Souls at Night will get less than 20%. Uh, The state actually had to negotiate with them. And in the end, I'm told that producers took the deal because they really wanted to shoot here in Colorado. Hmm. Uh, Before we let you go, there are other films currently in the works in Colorado that will also get state funding. That includes one called Hoax. What's that about? So this is a horror film. Uh, It's kind of a throwback to movies like Friday the 13th. Uh, This is kind of neat. The filmmakers call it a love letter to monster movies (laughs) of the past. The story involves a camping trip. Of course, we're in Colorado. (laughs) It doesn't end well. And then the ensuing investigation also turns into a bit of a fight for survival. And it's possible that Bigfoot is involved. Uh, They're shooting now in a mountain town called Lake City in southwest Colorado. And this project can get up to $160,000 from the state. And they've hired 45 Coloradans. And then there's also Amateur. I understand this is another Netflix film. Yeah, correct. Uh, You know, Netflix continues to spend a lot on its original content right now. Amateur is a basketball movie. It's about a young athlete whose videos go viral. And they've been shooting at Regis University in Denver. Uh, It's eligible for up to $350,000 from Colorado. So uh, again, we're seeing a lot of film activity. Activity across the state right now.
Thanks, Corey. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones on the movie adaptation of Our Souls at Night and Colorado's Film Incentives Program. Last year, the Denver Center's theater company had high hopes to bring Our Souls at Night to the stage, but those ambitions were, of course, dashed by the deal with Netflix. We got a taste of what the book might sound like in a theatrical setting earlier uh, last summer. Denver Center actors read the first few chapters of of Our Souls at Night during a Colorado Matters event at the Tattered Cover last summer. Our Souls at Night by Kent Hariff. Chapter 1. And then there was the day when Addie Moore made a call on Lewis Waters. It was an evening in May, just before full dark. They lived a block apart on Cedar Street in the oldest part of town, with elm trees and hackberry, and a single maple grown up along the curb, and green lawns running back from the sidewalk to the two-story houses. It had been a warm in the day, but it turned off cool now in the evening. She went along the sidewalk under the trees and turned in at Lewis's house. When Lewis came to the door, she said, Could I come in and talk to you about something? They sat down in the living room. Can I get you something to drink, some tea? No, thank you. I might not be here long enough to drink it. She looked around. Well, your house looks nice. Well, Diane always kept a nice house. I've tried a little bit. It still looks nice. I haven't been here for years. She looked out the windows at the side yard where the night was settling in and out into the kitchen where there was a light shining over the sink and counters. It all looked clean and orderly. He was watching her. She was a good-looking woman. He'd always thought so. She had dark hair when she was younger, but it was white now and cut short. She was still shapely, only a little heavy at the waist and hips. You probably wonder what I'm doing here. Well, I didn't think you came over to tell me my house looks nice. Mm. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I want to suggest something to you. Oh? It's, it's a kind of proposal. Okay. Not marriage. Oh, I didn't think that either. But it's a kind of marriage-like question. But I don't know if I can now. I'm I'm getting cold feet. (laughs) That's sort of like marriage, isn't it? What is? Cold feet. It can be. (laughs) Yes, well, I'm just going to say it. I'm listening. I wonder if you would consider coming to my house sometime to sleep with me. (laughs) What? How do you mean? I mean, we're both alone. We've been by ourselves for too long, for years. I'm lonely. I think you might be too. I wonder if you'd come and sleep in the night with me and talk. (laughs) You don't say anything. Have I taken your breath away? I guess you have. Well, I'm not talking about sex. I wondered. (laughs) No, not sex. I think I've lost my sexual impulse a long time ago. I'm talking about getting through the night and lying warm in bed companionably. The nights are the worst, don't you think? Yes, I think so. I end up taking pills to go to sleep and reading too late, and then I, I feel groggy the next day. No use at all to myself or anybody else. I've had that myself. 
But I think I could sleep again if there was someone else in bed with me. Someone nice. The closeness of that. Talking in the night, in the dark. What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> When do you want to start? <laughs> Whenever you want to, if you want to. This week? Let me think about it. All right. But I want you to call me on the day you're coming, if that happens, so I'll know to expect you. All right. And I'll be waiting to hear from you. What if I snore? Well, then you'll snore or you'll learn to quit. That would be a first. She stood and went out and walked back home. And he stood at the door watching her. This medium-sized, 70-year-old woman with white hair, walking away under the trees in the patches of light thrown out by the corner street lamp. What in the hell? <laughs> Now don't get ahead of yourself. Chapter 2. The next day, Lewis went to the barber on Main Street and had his hair cut short and neat, a kind of buzz cut, and asked the barber if he still shaved people, and the barber said he did, so he got a shave, too. Then he went home and called Addie. I'd like to come over tonight, if that's still all right. Yes, it is. I'm glad. He ate a light supper, just a sandwich and a glass of milk. He didn't want to feel heavy and laden in her bed. And then he took a long, hot shower and scrubbed himself thoroughly. He trimmed his fingernails and toenails, and at dark, he went out the back door and walked up the back alley, carrying a paper sack with his pajamas and toothbrush inside. <laughs> It was dark in the alley, and his feet made a raspy noise in the gravel. A light was showing in the house across the alley, and he could see the woman in profile there at the sink in the kitchen. He went on into Addie Mae's backyard, past the garage and the garden, and knocked on the back door. He waited quite a while. A car drove by on the street out front, its headlights shining. He could hear the high school kids over on Main Street hogging their horns at one another. Then the porch light came on above his head and the door opened. What are you doing back here? I thought it would be less likely for people to see me. I don't care about that. They'll know. Someone will see. I made up my mind. I'm not going to pay attention to what people think. I've done that too long. All my life. I'm not going to live that way anymore. Allie makes it seem like we're doing something wrong or something disgraceful to be ashamed of. I've been a school teacher in a little town too long. That's what it is. But all right. I'll come by the front door next time, if there is a next time. Don't you think there will be? Is this just a one-night stand? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Minus the sex part of that, of course. I don't know how far this will go. Don't you have any faith? In you, I do. I can have faith in you. I see that already. But I'm not sure I can be equal to you. What are you talking about? How, how do you mean that? Encourage. Willingness to risk. Yes, but you're here. That's right. I am. Then you better come in. We don't have to stand out here all night, even if it isn't something to be ashamed of. He followed her across the back porch into the kitchen. 
Let's have a drink first. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Actors Chris Kendall, Billy McBride, and Kathleen McCall, reading from Kent Harreff's Our Souls at Night at the Tattered Cover Bookstore last summer. Coming up, we revisit our conversation with Harreff's wife, Kathy, and his editor, Gary Fiskett-John. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking about the book All Souls at Night. The author, Kent Harreff, who lived in Salida, died in 2014. He was 71 and passed away after finishing the novel. Robert Redford and Jane Fonda will star in a movie adaptation of the book. They begin shooting in Florence, Colorado next month. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with Harreff's wife, Kathy, and his editor, Gary Fiskett-John, at the Tattered Cover Bookstore last summer. He asked Kathy what she thought about the book's storyline. Well, I just think that Kent had an, a brilliant idea there. When I read the manuscript, I thought I was so shocked. And then I thought, this is brilliant. Why would older people who are isolated by themselves, lonely, why wouldn't they do that? Why haven't we heard about this? You were shocked at first. What, what shocked you about Well, because I've just never heard of this idea of somebody going to someone they know and say, will you spend the night with me? And, and we're not talking about romance. We're just talking about getting through the night. It's a great idea. And I've never read a book about it. Have you, Gary? Nope. Nope. Never read anything. <laughs> I've never read a book about it, and I've never really heard anybody who's done that. And I think, I, I think it'll become a trend. <laughs> At the risk of getting personal, did you see it as Kent giving you permission to do this after he'd passed? I mean, in other words, he was writing this book when he knew he was ill. Yeah. Uh, was this a kind of um, acknowledgement that it was okay to seek companionship for yourself? Oh, I don't know. I never thought of that. <laughs> when he was ready to write this book, he said... Well, in April a year ago, he was feeling a little better physically, and he said he was going to go to his writing shed. Let me say that he had a lung disease. He had a, a, a lung disease, yeah, an incurable lung disease. So he said, I'm going to write a story about us. And I said, really? So when I read the manuscript, I realized, ah, he's talking about a couple old people who talk all the time, because that was... As he said, that was always his favorite time of the day when we'd lie in bed at night and hold hands and talk over everything. The day, living, dying, kids. And he loved that. And so I realized that's what he's talking about. How are you doing? Are you, are you holding up? I'm, I'm up and down and all around, so I think I'm, I'm doing just fine. Yeah. Gary, how would you describe, to those who haven't read a Kent Harif novel, how would you describe his writing? Hmm. Real good. <laughs> you, you, ought to, you ought to read it. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, actually, that you say real good, because I think one attribute of Ken Harris' writing is its simplicity and yep. its spareness. Well, one of the reviews of this book said it's distilled to its essence. And, you know, a wrong word fouls it all up. I mean, everything has to be exactly perfect. And I think that that's true of this book. In 2013, Kent Harif was on Colorado Matters, and I asked him about Holt, this 
tiny fictional town where he set plain song, eventide, benediction, and now our souls at night. I feel as if I've invented that place. I know that all the streets and most of the people in the county and uh, the gravel roads, the, uh, the main street going north and south, the highway going east and west, the elevators at, along the railroad, stores and the false storefronts on Main Street, the names of the streets as such as they are, all those things I have in my mind so I don't have to spend time thinking about them or reinventing them. Have you ever tried drawing Holt or laying out the streets or something? No, I, I know that pretty clearly, but I have drawn pictures of individual houses so that I knew how they uh, were laid out and where the sun would strike the rooms uh, from the south and so on. What feelings do you have about Holt? And I wonder if you ever long to go to this non-existent place, because I have felt that desire after reading his books. Well, Holt is pretty clear in my mind from, from his books and from being through the towns that he kind of used as models for this this area. Yeah, let, me, let me say he was born in Pueblo, but he lived in towns like like Ray and Holyoke and Yuma, Colorado. Right. These were inspirations for him. Well, I think he took what he knew from those and used parts of you know, what he knew to make up this town of his. Gary, do you ever want to go to Holt? I'd like to ride around out in the high plains, for sure. Um, but I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be trying to identify anything. But just, you know, I love those small little towns anyway. But he's, again, he's distilled those towns into this town, so there's no, there's, there are no direct correlations. Kathy made reference to his writing shed. Um, like everyone's got a writing shed, go to the writing shed. Um, what was the writing shed? Like, paint a picture of that for us. Well, it was an eight by eight tool shed that we bought and we insulated and then took sheets and stapled them up there for wallpaper and and um this is in salida well that was up in maysville when we lived in the mountains and then um, about two and a half years ago we moved into salida and brought it with us it had a desk and a chair and a little heater and his old uh royal typewriter and um it had a bull skull so it hanging on the wall so he would he would remember not to write bullshit <laughs> and it had a little bookshelf in it, and that was about it. It was great. And he wrote on a typewriter. His first draft of a book was always written on an old upright typewriter. He'd pull a stocking cap over his eyes so that he wasn't distracted by punctuation or any any of these things. And so he would just be... He would type blind. He would type blind, and he'd be typing away. And, but usually it would be just a scene on a page. And, and he said he only got off a home row a couple of times and wrote gobbledygook. But that um, was just an old typewriter, and you could hear the tap, tap, tap. It strikes me as like very Jack Kerouac, that he was, he was writing in a kind of a frenzy or a, a stream of consciousness... Well, he would get in some kind of an alpha state or whatever you call it and, and writing blind so he, did, he wasn't worried about syntax or punctuation, paragraphs, anything. I mean, he would just type 
Gary, as an editor, how familiar are you with your writer's routines, and does Kent Harriff's routine sound like anyone you've ever met? I think a lot of people, you know, will be, who happen to live in prettier places than I have happen to live, you know, be a big window. They'll, they'll face the blank wall rather than be able to sit and look out the window. I mean, it makes a kind of sense, although it's contrary to what we like to do in our normal lives, but... Um, you know, the stocking cap thing is certainly a, a new wrinkle. Um. <laughs> Kent Harriff did not use quotation marks in his dialogue, and I asked him about that in uh, 2013. Well, uh, some years ago, when I, I really started doing that with Plain Song, then I decided I didn't want to use quotation marks anymore. Mainly it had to do with the appearance of the page. It seems to me much less busy, less fussy to see a plain page of prose without quotation marks. Um, The other parts of that is that without quotation marks, a reader, I think, has to slow down a little bit to make sure he or she knows whether it's narration or dialogue. And uh, that's not a bad thing. If the writing's any good, to slow a reader down and make make the reader uh, read carefully. Not everybody thinks it's a good idea, I assure you. I got a letter once from a woman in Illinois who uh, wrote me and said that she had read three pages of Plain Song and would not read any more because there were no quotation marks. And she closed her letter by saying, well, I hope you're not an English teacher. And of course, I taught English for 29 years. And, but I will say that when I am teaching writing classes, writing students, that I... Uh, expect them to abide by the conventions until I know they know them and then they can make some experiments if they want. How was it as an editor to read prose with no quotation marks? And did you ever have discussions with him about that? Or No, it seemed natural to me. I mean, Kent wasn't the only person who, who did that. Cormac McCarthy's shoes, quotation marks, and all sorts of other things. Um, I mean, what what I like about what Kent had to say about that is it does encourage close reading. In a way, it's almost a shortcut. I think it would, in the case of Kent's prose, it, it's so pure and direct, it would almost seem gratuitous to me. So we never had any... You know, occasionally I will say to, to different writers, are you sure about this? Because... I ain't. (laughs) But that never came up with Ken. We're revisiting a conversation about Our Souls at Night, a novel by well-known Colorado author Kent Harreff. It was released in 2014 after his death. CPR's Ryan Warner spoke with his wife, Kathy, and his editor, Gary Fiskett-John, at the Tattered Cover Bookstore last summer. More of the conversation after the break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's rejoin our conversation about Colorado novelist Kent Harreff. He died in 2014 and is best known for his critically acclaimed Plain Song trilogy, set in the fictional Colorado town of Holt, as is his final novel, Our Souls at Night. CPR's Ryan Warner spoke with Harreff's wife, Kathy, and his editor, Gary Fiskett-John, at the Tattered Cover Bookstore last summer. He asked Kathy to choose a sample of her husband's writing that she really loves. She selected a passage from Plain Song, published in 1999. It's considered Harreff's breakthrough novel. He was 56 at the time. 
Well, I'm, I mean, Plain Song is a, a story about family and about people looking for love and forming new extended families. And in this passage, uh, Maggie Jones is a high school teacher who has a 17-year-old girl, Victoria, who is pregnant, living with her and her old father. And because um, Victoria's mother has kicked her out because of the pregnancy. Uh, The arrangement with Maggie isn't working any longer because her father has dementia, and it's just, it's not working. So Maggie is looking for another place for Victoria to live. And she goes to see the McFerrins, two old brothers who live together on a ranch outside of Holt. So, I want something improbable, she said. That's what I want. I want you to think about taking this girl in, of letting her live with you. They stared at her. You're fooling, Harold said. No, Maggie said, I am not fooling. They were dumbfounded. They looked at her, regarding her as if she might be dangerous. (laughs) Then they peered into the palms of their thick, calloused hands spread out before them on the kitchen table. And lastly, they looked out the window toward the leafless and stunted elm trees. Oh, I know it sounds crazy, she said. I suppose it is crazy. I don't know. I don't even care. But that girl needs somebody, and I'm ready to take desperate measures. She needs a home for these months. And you, she smiled at them, you old solitary bastards need somebody too. Somebody or something besides an old red cow to care about and worry over. It's too lonesome out here. Well, look at you. You're going to die someday without ever having had enough trouble in your life. Not of the right kind, anyway. This is your chance. So this whole book talks about finding family in all kinds of unusual places. And um, people looking for love and people giving love and opening their doors to each other. I mean, that's what Plain Song is about. Plus, it's real funny. Well, it is, it, it is funny. Um, He's really good at that, isn't he? I mean, in this span of just a few phrases, you can be laughing and then having goosebumps because he's, he's had such a profound exchange. Yeah. Yeah. Would you guys allow me to highlight an especially beautiful line from Eventide, which is the second book in the trilogy? Is that okay? Sure. So one of the McFerrin brothers dies, Harold, And again, these are the rancher brothers with a tough exterior, but hearts of gold. And Harif wrote of the surviving brother, Raymond, he prayed that there would be cattle in the afterlife for his brother's sake. It is so simple. It is so elegant. And uh, we got to ask Kent Harif about that line in 2010. Of course, what it suggests is that Raymond wants for his brother what his brother would most want for himself after he's died. And if you're a cattle rancher, a cattle rancher thinks that there is no other occupation for a man as good as that. And so what he hopes for his brother is that he will be able to continue in some version the the best parts of the, the life that he led while he was alive. So, Kathy Harriff, one more question for you about a passage from Our Souls at Night. Addie asks Lewis, aren't you afraid of death? Not like I was, he answers. I've come to believe in some kind of afterlife. 
a return to our true selves, a spirit self. We're just in this physical body till we go back to spirit. Do you think that's Kant talking about his view of his own death? Yes, yes. He and I spent, oh, probably six months. Our, our morning routine would be for him to have his smoothie. I had my cup of tea. I would read from all kinds of spiritual books, not church books, but just all kinds of spiritual books for maybe 20 minutes. Then we'd talk a little bit about it. We'd meditate a little bit. and That was our morning routine. And I think, um, well, I know it made a huge difference for him because that had never been his. I'd always had lots of books over the last 50 years on all these kinds of things. And periodically I'd read something. I'd say, what do you think of that? And he'd say, I don't know what to think about that. But he was always very, very respectful. I don't know what to think about that. But we had so many discussions and so much reading from different sources. And I think the wonderful thing that came from it is he lost his fear of dying. I mean, what bigger gift could anybody ask for? Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having us. Now let's take some questions from our audience at the Tattered Cover. John Hughes from Denver. Gary, you started working with Kent with the book Plain Song that became a big breakout for him. And I wonder if you, as you were going around the country to author appearances with Kent, how did you see him react to crowds of people whom he might not have uh, encountered before? And Kathy, I wonder how he reacted when he was off stage and when it was all over. We knew each other pretty well because you get to know a writer well. When you go through the editing, the writer gets to figure out if you're completely full of it or not. And we kind of we hit it off and went through this really intense and you know extended process. But... And many, many, many months later, we finally met in Milwaukee, and at the first event, and then we went along, and, and it was thought at some point that since Kent wasn't terribly well known, that it would be nice to have somebody else keep him company or something. And it was useless. I mean, the crowds were so everything was jam packed, and. I like it as a bystander just to see, you know, because I sit in, uh, at my desk like an author sits at his or her desk, and, you know, that's a scintillating kind of deal. <laughs> it can get a little lonesome. Um, and and aside from events, you know, like that, the writer never gets to see the people who love reading his stuff, her stuff, and... It was wonderful to see. I think it was, you know, wonderful for Kent to experience because no writer writes except, you know, the main reason is you want to be read. And it's very frustrating how difficult that can be. And I think that Kent had experienced that difficulty. And here he was getting kind of the opposite. So it was exhilarating. I mean, he was sick, I was sick. I mean, it was a kind of pathetic show, but he, he did really good, and all I had to do was stand there and hope not to keel over. They had quite a uh, dog and pony show that first first week of the first tour of Plain Song. 
these two sick men going down the West Coast. <laughs> but Kendall, after after he would have a gig and he'd, he'd do his his reading and questions and answers. I mean, he always felt good afterwards, in you know, his in his quiet way. But it felt very satisfying to him, and he he always loved the question and answer part. I mean, that was that was the most interesting part to him. Did he have a lot of frustration that it, I mean, because he was 56, right, when Plain Song came out mm-hmm. and had been writing, well, he'd written two novels prior, right. and I think his first short story wasn't published till he was in his 40s. Was that a source of real frustration for him? Well, I think he was just surprised with Plain Song. I mean, he was, he was shocked. I mean, he wrote Plain Song, he, it took him about six years. He was shocked at the the reception of it, that it was so well received, and he felt really good about it. Janie Holman from Littleton. Uh, Gary, this is a question for you. How did Kent happen upon you initially with his manuscript, or how did you happen upon him? Well, it, I'll go back to the first book, which came out in 1984, and it was nominated for a, a host of awards, and it might have even won one or two of them. I noticed this, and I said, well, i got to read this book, because obviously this is somebody, and it was the first book. I didn't expect that I could have heard of him before. And I read it and was hugely impressed. And This is I, the, the Tide of Binds? This is the Tide of And I don't read, I, I like to keep up with who's doing good work. I'm, I'm not looking around to see some writer somebody else is publishing so I can steal him or her. Um, so it got a lot of attention. I don't, you know, I don't know what the, I don't remember what the sales were, but they weren't, they weren't appropriate. Um, the second book was published in such an invisible way that I, I wasn't even aware there was a second book. And that wouldn't have been heartening to anybody but a masochist. Um, and this is where you once belonged. Yeah. So I think that Kent decided, you know, he had to make some kind of change. And um, he and his agent kind of landed on me. I think that he probably sent it to other people as well. But um, it was a book that didn't take me long to realize what was there, and I wanted it very badly. And I think Kent, like some of the other people I published... I must say that the manuscript was sent out to a few places. Tons of people. That is the manuscript for Plain Song. For Plain Song, and Kent always said... I don't care what the advance is. If Gary Fiskett, John will take it, that's who I'm going with. I mean, he had his eye on you before. It didn't matter what anybody else offered. So that was a, that was a given. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. Okay. Thanks. Kathy Harriff, wife of the late Colorado author Kent Harriff, and his editor Gary Fiskett-John. CPR's Ryan Warner spoke with them at the Tattered Cover Bookstore last summer. It marked the posthumous release of Harriff's final novel, Our Souls at Night. Robert Redford and Jane Fonda will star in the film adaptation. They begin shooting in Florence, Colorado next month. And that's our show for today. Thanks to our audio engineers, Ted Coleman and Michael Hughes. My 
Director Andrew Dukakis, producer Stephanie Wolf, Sadie Babbitts, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Anthony Cotton. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner, and our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook at CPR News. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of CPRnews.org, then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.